This is a Triple J podcast. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. How do you plan your holiday? Because your parents were probably trawling through travel guides for weeks, months, really considered advice in there, asking a lot of people. We're more likely to be getting our inspiration from TikTok or Instagram. But is this obsession with following the trends of influencers, their curated videos, styled pictures, those sorts of things, is that making us worse travellers? We're going to be getting into this later in the podcast, hashtag planning, what the risks associated with that are. Also, the trial of the former crypto king. We're checking in with Sam Bankman-Fried's trial in the US. He was a billionaire. Now he's facing decades behind bars. First, though. Hack. The EU's top diplomat, Joseph Borrell, described it as a new peak of ruthlessness by Moscow. On Triple J. With the world's attention on Gaza and everything happening in the Middle East at the moment, you've probably lost track of the war in Ukraine. But it's still raging on. It's definitely not slowing down. Actually, Ukraine says that over the past 24 hours, Russia has hit more towns and villages than it has on any other day this year. So what is the state of the war at the moment? What kind of impact does the fighting in the Middle East have on Ukraine, on Russia? If at all, let's find out. Matthew Sussex is with ANU's Strategic and Defence Studies Centre. He's been coming on over the past couple of years to explain what the situation is in Ukraine, and he's with us again now. G'day, Matt. Thanks for coming on, Hack. G'day, Dave. Thanks for having me. This intense Russian bombardment of Ukraine, hitting more than 100 settlements over the past 24 hours, what has sparked that? Was that a massive surprise? Oh, look, not really. It's um, part of the sort of occasional shock and awe that the Russian armed forces like to do to instill fear in the Ukrainian population to show that, you know, the Russians can hit them pretty much anywhere. Also to show that, you know, they've got plenty of missiles and rockets left that they can use, um, particularly as winter starts coming on. And uh, what the Russians did last year was to try and knock out Ukrainian power generation so the population basically froze. That was ultimately unsuccessful, but uh, I dare say they're going to try it again this year. Right, so we're seeing similar kinds of tactics uh, than we might have seen at, at the same time last year. Where is this war up to, Matt, for people who might not be following it on a day-to-day basis? Has Ukraine lost a lot of ground? Yeah, well, I mean, the Russians have, have basically picked up from where they were in terms of the the proxy forces that controlled chunks of Ukraine before the Russian invasion last year, the Russian armed forces have picked up about an extra 15% of that territory. So they don't hold an enormous amount more. The problem is, I think, from both sides, is that they're getting very, very tired. And we're, we're on the verge now of this just becoming a sort of long war of attrition where neither side can really take territory from the other um, and they continue to, uh, you know, to lob munitions at one another. Is there any one side that's feeling it more than the other, do you think? Like, is the fatigue more likely to affect the Russian forces or the Ukrainians? Yeah, look, I think, you know, the Ukrainians have something that's something more to fight for than the Russian, particularly mobilised soldiers who are at the front who seem to be being used in just, you know, waves of, of cannon fodder which is horrendous for morale and they're poorly equipped too. 
But we're at the point, I think, where, where, where neither side can really go forward or is finding it very difficult to go forward. So, the unfortunately, the view that this war will go on for another two years, possibly even three years, is is probably the thing that's most likely at the moment because, you know, neither Vladimir Putin nor Vladimir Zelensky have got any real incentive to stop fighting. Matt, how do you think what's happening in Gaza has impacted the war in Ukraine? Oh, I think it's got a number of quite important impacts. Uh, first of all, from the Russian perspective, it holds up aid from the United States to Ukraine. One of the things that we've seen with the uh, political turmoil in the US um, and the overthrow of uh, the former Speaker McCarthy is that now that they finally elected a, a new Speaker, he's decided to go with a funding bill that prioritises aid for Israel, not aid for Ukraine. So that's something the Russians will be quite pleased about, that it, it, it ties up that aid in the US Congress for, for a while yet. The second thing I think that the Russians will be pleased about is that it distracts American attention and European attention and, and the rest of the West as well towards Israel, Gaza and the West Bank at a time when previously they just had one thing that they were focused on and, and that was the war in Ukraine. And there's a third reason too that the Russians will be pleased and that is that no, it creates um, this. This conflict is is deepening turmoil within the Middle East and and making it very very difficult for countries that would otherwise want friendly relations with Israel to really um, go about selling that to their domestic publics, particularly given you know the loss of life that we've seen in the Gaza Strip. So turmoil and chaos in the Middle East suits Russia just fine under those circumstances. Interesting. And with Vladimir Zelensky, the leader of Ukraine, is he still out there trying to keep the world's attention on what's happening in his country? Because that must be really difficult at the moment as well to achieve if everyone is focused on Gaza. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, and it's no surprise that Zelensky has linked a lot of his messaging to what's happening now in Israel and Gaza and are saying that, you know, the Russians are basically the state equivalent of terrorists and that they needed to they need to be defeated. Otherwise, you know, it sends a really bad message to the rest of the world. So certainly he he's seeking to link his cause to that of, um, you know, people who are effectively innocent as a way to, to try and make sure that Ukraine remains front and centre in the minds of, of people in the West. Do you think it's likely that Western countries will continue supporting Ukraine in the ways they have over the past 18 months? Look, um, I think they will. Uh, it doesn't mean to say that there isn't some fatigue creeping in. I'm sure, that, you know, there is. But it's not yet decisive enough that I think it would actually hold up decisions by individual governments to send particularly military aid to Ukraine. We've seen, you know, a, a bit of a slide in support in the Republican Party in the United States, but again, not enough to tip the balance. So assuming there are enough you know, weapons to send to Ukraine, which is another question, then I think that you'll see a you know, determination to keep doing that when possible. The thing is that, that globally there is basically a shortage of arms because everybody is using them at the moment. Uh, the Russians are, are burning through artillery ammunition, something like 11 to 12 million artillery shells they shot at the Ukrainians last year, 7.8 million this year. 
And the West has said, well, we won't really invest in, in war stocks. So those are running thin as well. So globally, there is a you know, kind of high demand, unfortunately, for weapons. This is Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with ANU Associate Professor Matthew Sussex about the war in Ukraine. There's been a real surge in intensity in fighting over the past day with Russia hitting Ukrainian towns and villages. You said before, Matt, that there is this risk of this war kind of just dragging on the fighting and it becoming a lot messier than what it already is. How do you expect things to play out over the winter months in Ukraine? Yeah, look, I think that that that's probably what we're going to get, this sort of grinding war of attrition. That's not to say that the Ukrainians can't take more ground off the Russians during the winter. I think people often make the mistake of thinking, well, when everything's frozen, nothing can happen. That's not true, um, as, you know, the Ukrainians demonstrated last year as well. But it does certainly slow them down. Now, what the Ukrainians really want to do is they want to try and get close to this southern town of Tokmak where they can cut the rail link that allows the Russians to resupply their troops in Crimea uh, and in southwestern Ukraine. And if they can do that, they can also bring the the coastal road, which is the alternative way the Russians might supply those troops, into range. And, And that would put some real pressure on Russia's ability to hold that territory that it has in Crimea and uh, and southwestern Ukraine. And Matt, we spoke earlier this year about the support for this war within Russia itself. Uh, we've spoken previously about protests, those kinds of things. Do we have any idea uh, what Russian people are thinking of the, uh, this war more than 18 months on? Well, certainly, you know, the number of casualties just keeps on mounting up and mounting up. And not just people who die on the battlefield, but people who you know, return really badly maimed, you know, those who have lost limbs and will find it difficult to you know, fit back into society and work and you know, will require medical care for the, the rest of their lives in many cases. So I, I think there is a sense in Russia that they, they would very much like the war to stop, but there's certainly no incentive to go out and say so on the streets, particularly when you can get 15 years in jail for that. An issue we'll be covering for a long time yet, I'm sure of it. Associate Professor Matthew Sussex from ANU, appreciate your take. Thanks for joining us on Hack. Thanks again, Dave. Hack on Triple J. Yeah, we will keep you across all of those developments in the months ahead. Uh, Conflicts going on right around the world. Hack. The man once known as Crypto's White Knight has pleaded not guilty to all seven fraud-related charges. On Triple J. Honestly, the downfall of crypto king Sam Bankman-Fried is so crazy that you know they're already working on the movie. One of the youngest billionaires in the world accused of one of the biggest financial crimes in US history. Sam Bankman-Fried, SBF as they call him, denies that he was involved in fraud, in money laundering by stealing billions of dollars from customers before his crypto exchange FTX collapsed. He says he didn't do that. But he's had this big trial and within days, even hours, we could find out if he is guilty or not. The world has been watching. His ex-girlfriend testified against him. He's been grilled over his haircut, over his fashion choices. It's definitely been a wild ride. And Sam Bankman-Fried is facing decades behind bars. I want to find out more. Blake Montgomery is the tech editor for Guardian US in New York and he has been covering this trial. He's with us now. G'day, Blake. Thank you very much for joining us on Hack. Thanks for having me. Remind us again what Sam Bankman-Fried has been on trial for. 
So he's charged formally with wire fraud and conspiracy to launder money for his role in the collapse of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX. He was the CEO of FTX at the time when it collapsed in November of last year. He's charged with using a hedge fund that was closely associated with FTX to siphon away FTX customers' funds and, in the words of prosecutors, misappropriate and embezzle them to the tune of $10 billion. He's accused of using that money illegally for $40 million penthouse in the Bahamas, uh, $100 million in political contributions, A-list celebrity endorsements, private jets, using his unwitting customers' billions of dollars for his own ends. So Sam Bankman-Fried's been giving his testimony this week in court. What has he had to say? He's denied the central charge that he defrauded his customers out of billions of dollars. And I should say he has pleaded not guilty. He has maintained his innocence throughout the trial. He said that he does not recall quite a lot of things that he said on the record and was recorded saying, which prosecutors then would play back for him or read back to him, such as uh, saying F regulators, which he did admit I said that once. The defense that he has mounted is that he never intended to be famous. He did not expect FTX to be so enormous as it was and that he got sort of overwhelmed and was making too many decisions at once. And some things kind of slipped through the cracks. His defense has called him a math nerd, painting the picture of this innocent person who could not have defrauded anybody. The prosecution, by contrast, focusing quite a lot, quite extensively on his appearance. He has this famous kind of messy mane of black hair. He would wear cargo shorts and T-shirts to big uh, onstage appearances. The prosecution was saying this was all a fairly, very carefully curated act in order to make people feel like he was this boy genius. And his ex-girlfriend, Caroline Ellison, who is CEO of the associated hedge fund that he allegedly used to siphon away his customers' money, testified that it was all an act, that he knew what this image was getting him. Um, and she has give, she has been the prosecution's star witness and has given really detailed, damning Stunning testimony. So interesting. It's a bit like a soap opera, really. There are all these different elements playing into this trial. It's about relationships. It's about appearances. What has Sam Bankman-Fried said in response to those claims by the prosecution that his public persona was a bit of an act? He said, I was just busy and lazy, that he just didn't cut his hair because he didn't have time. He was working 12 to 22 hours a day. This wasn't part of some masterful fraud scheme. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking to Blake Montgomery, the tech editor for Guardian US, who's been covering the Sam Bankman-Fried crypto trial in the United States. It's a huge case and uh, Sam Bankman-Fried has wrapped up giving his testimony. Blake, did SBF admit that a lot of people were hurt in this crypto collapse? Was there any kind of remorse there for those people who'd lost their money? He has admitted to, quote, large mistakes and, quote, significant oversights in his management of FTX. He said one of the biggest mistakes he made was not implementing a risk management team. He gave this kind of very extensive and surprising 
media tour after FTX collapsed. He talked to the New York Times. He talked to Vox. He talked to just dozens of media outlets in a move that he acknowledged was quite ill-advised legally. And he said in a lot of those that he was like, a lot of people got hurt. He said at one point, we tried to make the best crypto product possible and move the industry forward, and the opposite happened. So he has expressed remorse over the collapse of FTX, but he has not expressed responsibility. The other like entities and people that he blames are his ex-girlfriend, Caroline Ellison. He's focused a lot on this kind of repeated decision that she made to not hedge the positions of the hedge fund, Alameda Research, that she was CEO of that was so closely connected to FTX. He's also made quite a lot of the decision by Binance, the world's largest crypto exchange at this point, to sell a lot of the cryptocurrency token that was issued by FTX, this token called FTT, which plays a really central role in the sort of financial Jenga that was going on at FTX. One of the other interesting things I found was that he admitted that when he started out, he really had no idea about crypto or what it was. He just got into this <laughs> business and tried to learn as much as he could. It seems incredible that he reached such heights. You mentioned that he was blaming his ex-girlfriend, Caroline Ellison, that she, in response, was putting a lot of the blame back on him. How was she pleaded? She, along with other members of Sam Bankman-Fried's inner circle, one of the co-founders of FTX, this man named Gary Wang, the director of FTX's engineering department, Nishad Singh, as well as Caroline Ellison, have pleaded guilty to wire fraud and conspiracy. And they have, all three of them, have testified against Sam Bankman-Fried. Caroline Ellison, when asked by the prosecution, did you commit crimes? She said, yes at the direction of Sam Bankman-Fried. And Wang and Singh both said Bankman-Fried was not surprised to learn that there was an enormous budget shortfall at the hedge fund that indicated that the hedge fund had been using FTX customer funds, which is the sort of central crime Bankman-Fried is accused of, of using FTX customer funds illegally for his own ends via this hedge fund's so, Blake, as you've said, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried has pled not guilty. If he is, in fact, found guilty, what kind of uh, sentence is he facing? How serious of a punishment is there for this kind of crime? So he's charged with seven counts of wire fraud and conspiracy to launder money. And wire fraud is a very innocuous legal term for a federal crime, American federal crime that carries a huge sentence. Um, he could be facing decades in prison for each count of wire fraud. So, I mean, if convicted on all seven counts, I mean, he's only 31, but he could face what amounts to a life sentence in prison. Blake, what does this case, do you reckon, tell us about crypto itself as a sector? Because I'm sure there are a lot of questions about the volatility of crypto. People who are against it are probably pointing a lot of fingers. What do you think it tells us about this industry? It's a great question. I mean, I don't think this could have happened in an industry that was more tightly regulated than cryptocurrency. Like It is this new frontier. It is totally open. I mean, they were operating from the Bahamas a place with even kind of less financial regulation than the United States and using this technology that is like not 
so well understood at the U.S. like regulatory level. So it does seem like the high flying nature of it. They made like billions of dollars. And like you said, he knew nothing about it when he started this company and yet accrued billions and billions and billions of dollars and was seen as this was he was seen as the safest person to talk to know in crypto and FTX was the safest exchange of all of this, which is this sort of horrible irony that then it collapsed into nothing. And these customers are out billions and billions of dollars, whoever is responsible, whoever is deemed responsible at the end of this trial. Bitcoin, in an insane and surprising twist, is trading at its highest levels in a year, which is sort of shocking and does seem to say that Bitcoin will endure after this. In spite of all of these people. Blake Montgomery, tech editor for Guardian US, thank you very much for joining us on Hack. Thanks so much for having me. Hack. All righty, we are back with another cracker for you to chuck on that bucket list. On Triple Jack. Moving on now, I want to know, where do you get your travel inspo? Is it a lot of influencers that you follow on TikTok, on Instagram, or maybe you're one of those people that really likes to do your own research, find places off the beaten track. So many of us are getting advice from social media now. We're all addicted to it. And we know it is a bit staged, those perfectly edited videos, the beautiful pictures, but they're also irresistible. You see one post... And all of a sudden, you're booking your leave. Hack. You have to add this to your bucket list part three. Rescue crews are all too familiar with this scenario. How to get to figure eight pools Royal National Park. This is my favourite waterfall in Australia. When you consider how significant some of those overhangs are up at the, the top of the bluff where people place themselves for these social media posts, it's just a matter of time. Influencers might not understand that some of the images that have been posting of themselves in the creek have a direct influence on platypus themselves. One of these days, someone's going to fall off. On Triple J. Yeah, it all looks great on social media, but is this kind of travel planning, following influencers, that kind of thing, promoting risky, even dangerous styles of travel? Let's ask someone who's been looking into it. Sam Cornell is from UNSW. He's been looking into our travel planning habits and he is with us now. G'day, Sam. Thanks for coming on Hack. Hey, Dave. How you going? Yeah, I'm well, thank you. I'm really interested in your research that you've been doing. How much do you reckon we are relying on social media for our travel itineraries? Yeah, I, I think for the younger generation in particular, you know, those aged 18 to 35, there's a massive reliance on social media for finding places to visit, you know, beautiful places, places in national parks and things like that. And there's a there's a big reliance on it. And I've spoken to people who say that they don't even use things like, you know, guidebooks like Lonely Planet. When I was traveling, when I was young, I was using Lonely Planet. There wasn't really, social media wasn't a huge place you would go to to find places to visit. So I think information was a lot more sort of vetted, if you will, Mm. a bit more um, authoritative than social media. And I guess it's not just overseas either. It's big uh, travel destinations here in Australia. What kinds of places are we talking about? Oh, yeah, it it absolutely is. And, you know, there's places throughout Australia um, where people go because they've seen them on social media, um, you know, and they often want the same sort of, shot or um or you know or they want to experience it there's 
famous places. I mean, you just gave a, a great introduction. Those clips really paint the the picture of of this problem. Um, but places like figure eight pools, you know, are infamous in um, in New South Wales for you know being a beautiful curated image on social media, and it looks picture perfect, but um, that just doesn't show the true reality of, of that place, um, how it often is, you know, depending on the sort of ocean conditions or weather conditions. And then there's lots of places, you know, Babinda Boulders near Cairns has seen so many injuries and, and fatalities. And the truth is that the picture that's on Instagram or, or TikTok is just vastly different from, from the reality a lot of the time. Interesting. So can you explain how your research has worked and uh, and what you've kind of found out about the risks of following these kinds of influencer travel suggestions? Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm currently conducting interviews with, with influencers to really ascertain this issue, really, and, and understand from, from the influencer perspective what it's what it's like when you're, you know, creating content and how you portray that on social media and 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 the truth is you know there's a lot of um curation that goes into it there's a lot of um editing often and yeah i mean the reality is these these photos and and videos on tiktok they're not they're not designed necessarily to portray the risks because influencers don't necessarily see themselves as educators you know or even information providers you know they see themselves more as entertainers um you know they're not guides and 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 that's fair enough you know they're not they're not guides um they do have a often you know a platform to convey this kind of information which isn't necessarily always conveyed though that's very interesting because if we think about how travel guides were written in the past, it was in a really journalistic way and people who wrote those, a lot of them were journalists, travel writers. So it's a different approach and the impacts of that are very different as well. Geotagging is something that's a bit controversial when it comes to travel because there's obviously great benefits of showing people exactly where you are, exactly exactly where to go but there are also drawbacks aren't there what are they yeah exactly like geotagging has people seem to have different opinions on on whether or not you should be tagging certain places and you know i've spoken to influencers who talk about hidden gems for instance and there's a there's not necessarily a consensus of when you should or should not geotag but you're right they definitely have a massive impact in driving social media you know driven tourism to certain destinations um i suppose the, there's maybe a responsibility to to geotag uh sensibly if you will um because I, I think people don't necessarily always realize that if they're geotagging a place that doesn't have infrastructure to support an, a massive influx of tourism you know it's, ne- it's it's not necessarily been known about before um that can kind of lead to some risky consequences really what do you think people can do to be a more responsible tourist? How can you make sure that you're not putting yourself at risk, you're not putting the environment at risk, uh, other communities? Mm, I think you touched on some of those points, you know, previously. It's it's a case of not just relying on social media for your research when you go into places. Um, it sounds pretty old school, but like picking up a guidebook and having a look at the place is is definitely a good way of going about it because you know that information has been at least edited, um, you know, it's been vetted, it's it's been fact-checked. Um, but, you know, national parks, websites, they provide lots of really good up-to-date information on these places. 
So I think it's it's about not just seeing things on social media and thinking, well, that's that's the truth necessarily. You know, you should definitely research in other ways. And then crucially, when you get to these places, if if you do get there, you need to respect the barriers, the signs, you know, the local advisories, because those things are there for a reason. Like signs have been put there often because something actually has taken place, like an incident might have taken place. A danger sign, if that's up, it often means someone's been injured or potentially even killed before. And often, you know, these signs aren't just for personal risk. They might be there for environmental reasons um, or, or cultural reasons too. So it's definitely worth heeding the advice of signs and barriers, yeah. We've got some messages coming through. Someone says, what, follow people to end up in lines and queues, not how I like to travel. Another person says, this isn't dangerous, but I was at Angkor Wat earlier this year and could barely see the sunrise because of the phones and cameras all set up. For most people, this is a once-in-a-lifetime thing. And they spend the whole time elbows out trying to just get a photo. Look, it's definitely got people um, talking. Mm. People mm. have very strong opinions on travel and and how you travel. And this research is really interesting. So Sam Cornell, PhD candidate from UNSW, appreciate you coming on Hack and explaining all that to us. Thanks, Dave. And we've got some other messages coming through too on the text line about other stories that we've covered on Hack Today. Someone talking about the Crypto King trial that's happening in New York. They say if SBF Sam Bankman-Fried is found guilty, I hope they throw the book at him just for the lives he's destroyed and send a message not just to crypto exchanges, but anyone entrusted with other people's money. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.